What are cryptocurrencies? Hey, hey, hey. What are NFTs? A non-fungible token. Time to buy Bitcoin. Bitcoin just seems like a scam. What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, what's up? Bitcoin! Hello everyone, welcome back to On The Ledger. This is your host, Mol Said. It's been a while, but I'm glad to be back once again on a weekly rendezvous from Paris. Today, we're going to be talking about how technology is shaping our future. It's no surprise that the innovation brought about in the last couple of decades has made sci-fi a reality. The cost performance of computing power, bandwidth, and storage capacity is increasing at an exponential rate and shows no signs of slowing down. Just think about it. The iPhone in your pocket combines a dozen of former hardware devices and has over 100,000 times the processing power of the computer that landed man on the moon 50 years ago. Every year, our products keep getting better, faster, and stronger. But that is all about to dramatically change even further. This year has seen the emergence of a variety of AI products, showing us a glimpse of the exponential age, But one other innovation has the potential to completely change our world, and that is quantum computing. These machines are very different from the classical computers that have been around for more than half a century. Quantum computers harness the power of quantum mechanics to sift through huge numbers of possibilities and extract solutions to problems that might have been otherwise impossible to solve. Last year, the University of Science and Technology of China introduced the world's fastest quantum computer that is 2.1 million times more performant than a conventional computer. But what does that even mean? How will it shape innovation? What if they fall into the wrong hands? And are quantum computers truly a threat to our digital security? If you're interested in the future, you're going to want to hear the answers to these questions. Accompanying me on this journey are two experts in crypto security. We have Charles Guimet, Ledger's Chief Technology Officer, back on the show. And we're pleased to be joined by Jean-Philippe Omasson, Chief Security Officer at Taurus. Gentlemen, how are you feeling today? Hey, Mo. Uh, I'm very good. Uh, and very excited to do this deep dive with uh, Jean-Philippe who is a great cryptographer and uh, he, I know he is interested uh, in this topic. He, he did a few uh, presentations about that, so I thought he, he could be the best uh, host uh, to join us today. Hi, well guys, thank you for having me. Uh, very excited to have the discussion. Uh, I've been talking a lot and being very interested in quantum computing. So yeah, I would love to address a few points and clarify a few issues about the risk. Yeah, I'm, I'm really, really excited to get, you know, deep down into this rabbit hole with you all. And I, I think especially with what people have seen with AI this year, it's really like kind of giving us a glimpse of what the future would look like. And I think the quantum computing conversation and, and kind of reveal uh, of, of its impact will probably be the, the continuation of, of what started this year. But Charles, let me start with you. Like, you know, when most people have heard about quantum computers in the past, I would say, few years, they usually hear about very complex terms, um, you know, uh, qubits, superposition, entanglement, etc. Um, so I think a good way to start this conversation would be by explaining what com- quantum computers are in simple terms. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll throw this challenge onto you. <laughs> would you explain quantum computers to me like I was nine? <laughs> 
Yeah, frankly, this is not an easy task. Uh, quantum computing is uh, something difficult to understand. So it starts with quantum physics, uh, which is a field that studies how particles behave uh, at an atomic level, at a very uh, small level. And this is because the particles at this small size, uh, such electrons, atoms, and photons, behave very differently than how things behave normally in nature. These particles have certain properties that are a little bit counterintuitive uh, for us. And quantum computing is a computing system that utilizes utilize, uh, these quantum properties and the different phenomena we talked about. With classical computers, we use electronics. Electronics are made of wires and transistors. Transistors are essentially uh, switches uh, that uh, allow the current to go through or not. And we encode the information with bits, which are representing zero or one. If there is no current, this is a zero. If there is some current, this is a one. So this is very simple. And with this very simple logic, we, are, we have been able to build the computers and the information era we know today. It's, Pretty impressive to see that this very simple um, uh, principle allowed us to build uh, these uh, complex computers that we have today. With quantum computers, we use qubits. And the, with the quantum super, superposition principles, this is the difficult part of my explanation, uh, they, they can be one and zero at the same time. This, is, this part is very uh, counterintuitive. And this is the important principle we use in a quantum computer. In classical computers, a bit can only uh, code one single state, zero or one at once, and the computer operates uh, on that one state. However, in quantum computer, the qubits contain the two states at the same time and can operate on all the states at once. That means adding one qubit to a quantum computer uh, exponentially increases the number of states that it can contain and operate at once. This is, this is the, the trick that allows to, uh, to, to have significantly uh, better uh, computing power. And what is fun with this idea, it has been thought and algorithms have been designed a long time before any quantum computers could be built. This is something quite interesting. The theory was already ready before any kind of computers could be built. Uh, I tried to make it simple. I hope it gives a little bit more um, hmm. insight of what is what it is. I think that's a, a good starting. It's a good starting point. Uh, I would like to say what a quantum computer is not. So I'm in Switzerland today, and we know in Switzerland, unlike in France, when you live in a building, you have an apartment. And you usually share um, a washing machine to do your laundry that is in the basement. In my basement, I have a washing machine. I'm not going to say the brand, but it's the quantum model, the quantum version. And they named it this way because presumably it was much faster and powerful than the previous generation. But a quantum computer is not like my washing machine. It's not faster. It doesn't go faster it doesn't do more operations than a classical computer. It's not faster in terms of latency. It's not about speed. It's not about power and muscle. Uh, it's about a different paradigm of competition. 
So as Charles mentioned, qubit can be zero and one at the same time, so to speak. So that allows you to do computations where you have a starting point, you have an input, and you want an output. But what you do in between is completely different from a sequence of operation. Instead, we have something called the quantum state, so a number of qubits or quantum particles that evolves from one state to another, but in such a way that it's reversible, so you don't lose information, and you can simulate it classically if you have enough no, computing power. But as Charles mentioned, it gets exponentially harder to simulate as the size grows. And the last point uh, that is often misunderstood is the notion of quantum parallelism. So you can imagine a quantum state as storing many different values. And it's tempting to think, it, to think of it in terms of trying all the values at the same time and then picking the best. Like you're going to search for a key, to search for a password, or I can go the quantum way and do everything at the same time because of proposition. And then I will take the one that works. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Uh, quantum computers cannot solve all the hard problems. They can only solve efficiently very, very specific problems. We go into more details a bit later, but that's the concept of quantum speed up and specifically super polynomial speed up when you go from the practically impossible to the possible. You said something that's very interesting and, and maybe I'd, I'd like you to develop a little bit on that because um, to some people it might seem counterintuitive. Um, the fact that you were able to do both states at once, so what we call superposition, but you're also saying that it's not faster than normal computers. In what sense is it not faster? And then if, if they're not faster, what, what are the, like, the different use cases for which these computers are being developed? You do not um, compute on multiple values at the same time. Um, you have a quantum state that is not one given state, but that is a superposition uh, and when you observe the state, when you tell the state, okay, like what time is it? Then you will see the clock and it will be a given value. Um, there is a concept called quantum parallelism, but it's quite different from the intuitive notion of parallel computing. Now to answer your question regarding which problem can it solve. So there was a paper in 1982, so the year when I was born by the very famous physicist uh, Richard Feynman. And he was trying to understand subatomic systems, how they behave with respect to quantum mechanics, and he wanted to simulate it with a com computer. And he came to the conclusion that you cannot simulate it with a classical computer. You need a system that behaves like the laws of physics at a quantum level. And that's how he came to the idea of a quantum machine. So initially, quantum computers were imagined to understand physics, to understand nature, not to do crypto stuff. So what problems can it solve? First, there's the field of quantum chemistry, which is about simulating you know, chemical components at a very low level. Uh, in the context of what Ledger and Torus uh, are doing in crypto, well, a byproduct of quantum computers is this power of breaking the key problems that underlie most of the public key crypto system that we use. Uh, when you connect to a HTTPS website, when you do a blockchain transaction that you sign, you do some, you know, some public key crypto that involves some hard problems. And quantum computers happen to be able 
to solve these hard problems exponentially faster than any classical machine. Um, and, you know, when talking about like exponential growth, um, you know, another thing that really caught my attention is the speed at which like quantum commu- computing can develop compared to, you know, conventional computers. Um, and AI also is like, you know, um, developing at a much higher speed than Moore's, Moore's law. So most people are, you know, familiar with, with Moore's law. It's the, the fact that, you know, the number of transistors on a microchip uh, can double every two years while its cost halves. So we gain double the power and then we divide the cost by two. Um, but if you uh, if you look at like quantum computers, for instance, um, this doesn't really seem to apply. Uh, some people are mentioning like Nevin's law, uh, Charles, and the fact that it's like going even uh, faster. So what's that all about? And how, you know, wh- why is technology becoming more um, and more exponential in terms of development and growth? Yeah, maybe let's start with the Moore's law. This one is quite interesting because it's been formulated in 1965. That was the very beginning of computers. Like uh, uh, that was Moore, who was after the CEO of Intel, but that was the very, very beginning of, of computer. And he formulated this law at this time, and it 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 is quite true since then. So this is this is quite impressive to be able to predict the future like this. Uh, but now we are having a problem uh, to fulfill the law. We don't have to fulfill the law, but the, 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 I think the law will be wrong uh, quite soon because we are hitting uh, the physics boundaries. Because in order to uh, create circuits with more and more transistors, we need to be able to make them smaller and smaller. Um, those transistors are etched. Uh, always smaller, and when we talk about the size of the of the transistor, this is the 10 nanometer, 7 nanometer, 4 nanometer now. So this is the distance between the drain and the and the gate, let's say. And um, the, this is basically the size of these transistors. But the, the problem is one atom is one fourth of a nanometer. So at some point, we are getting very, very close to the dimension of what can be built in our physical world. So that's why the scientific community think the Moore's law uh, won't hold anymore in the future, because we are getting closer to to this very uh, atom dimension. And for Nevin's law, it posits that quantum computers are gaining uh, computer, computational power at a doubly exponential rate, which would be really, really faster than uh, the Moore's law. But frankly, I think the disposition needs to uh, pass the test of time, and I think it might be uh, it might be challenging because, as of now, we are talking about uh, quantum computer, but uh, there is some uh, theoretical and engineering problem to solve. It's difficult to uh, build. A quantum computer which works properly with a large number of qubits, and uh, this is the, the challenge that needs to, to solve, to be solved. And if we are able to do that, but this is a big if, uh, the Nevin's law uh, would be true. But for now, there was a, there was a big engineering problem to, to solve here. And if you were again to compare uh, the classical chips, where you can count in terms of you know transistor size, uh, number of gates per uh, surface frequency throughput. In the quantum world, we have different metrics. Uh, You can count the number of quantum bits, but even then it's not ideal because there's the number of qubits that you can use, what we call 
logical qubits that you can play with, that you can program with, and the number of physical qubits. Because you need many more logical qubits, you need many more physical qubits than logical ones because of the error correction that needs to happen. And the reason for this is that there's a lot of interference in the quantum system because of the noise, the pressure, and the fact that you deal with you know, tiny particles. So you need many, many more qubits to make this work. And the second problem is uh, stability. Uh, currently, we have experimental quantum computing systems that maybe remain stable for a few microseconds or milliseconds. But to be useful, we need something that is stable for, I don't know, hours, days. Uh, and we need not hundreds of qubits like we have today, but millions. So that's the reason why, uh, as far as I can tell, today there is no quantum computer that has an actual industrial use case that can do something faster, better, uh, more reliably than a classical system. There's only been cases, uh, yeah, where the cases where they took a, an optimized quantum quantumish system and they compared it to a, a general implementation on a general purpose machine. Was you want to compare apples with apples. So to, we're not there to yet. Add, to add on this, definitely we are not there yet. To add on this, um, the, so we need more and more qubits to be able to compute uh, relevant problems, to be able to solve them. And the problem is whenever you add one qubit, uh, it has an impact of the stability, on the stability of your, of your system. So there, there was this trade-off where you need a stable system with many qubits, but when you add more qubits, the stability uh, decreases. So th this is part of the problem that needs to be solved, and this is very complex. And uh, I agree with uh, Jean-Philippe. Uh, today, we are far from being able to solve them. that. You, you both said very interesting stuff, but I think a lot of people don't even imagine what a com quantum computer looks like. And could you maybe speak a little bit more to that and how that stability component is very important? Because when you talk about like a conventional computer, if someone says to you, like the, the computer needs to be stable, you're going to be like, yeah, I mean, my Mac is stable. There's no issue there. Uh, could, could, you, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, imagine your MacBook, your computer, you have memory of, you know, zeros and ones. And suddenly, bits start flipping, like one becomes zero in the other way. You're like, oh, damn, uh, file corrupted. Uh, my computer will not, will not work. So you need some machinery under the hood that will correct these zeros as it goes. And that's what, what we need. Uh, and also, you need this quantum computer to work at very in a very cold environment, you know, like the close to the zero Kelvin degree. So, you know, it's not the laptop that you have in your living room. That, that, that I can imagine. And I, I actually highly advise people to like Google, like maybe Google Sycamore computer. There's another one by IBM, which I forgot yeah. the name. And you have a lot of like images on, online. And it really looks like it's in a big room and it looks like, you know, right. something from a why you know sci-fi movie um but anyway it's pretty clear that you know quantum computing is revolutionary technology we're not there yet but it's growing at an exponential rate um and i can't help but wonder the things that could go wrong if that technology falls into the wrong hands um so you know if quantum computing can break um cryptographic encryptions what will happen to cybersecurity, banking systems, communications, and of course, blockchain technology? I think we want to distinguish different cases. Because uh, there's a class of crypto that we call post-quantum crypto that could be immune to quantum computers. And it's a kind of insurance, you know, in case things go wrong. 
Um, so imagine you encrypt a piece of data today, something very, maybe the keys to your crypto wallet, and it's encrypted, but it might be in some cloud platform. Some other people might see the ciphertext. Um, and you don't want them to, to be able to decrypt it the day a quantum computer is available in case this happens. So pure encryption, pure public key encryption is the most critical case uh, because there's no way to salvage security. However, for the blockchain case, uh, public crypto is mostly used to issue signatures. So whereby you endorse a transaction, you sign a statement and whatnot. So if, I don't know, 10, 20 years from now, we see that a quantum computer is about to be created, then it's fine. You can just transition to another signature scheme that is quantum safe or post-quantum. So you see the difference for encryption. You need to think in advance because when the ciphertext is out there, people can store it and later decrypt it. For signature, you can wait and then switch to the new signature scheme when you need to. So people are currently like building um, and engineers are developing like different blockchains. Developers are coding like different um, technologies with the thought of the possibility of quantum computing coming into play and probably uh, being a threat to these technologies. So they're also preempting that. Uh, so that that's for everything in crypto. But like, what about like the general stuff, like banking systems and 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 like communications and and all of that? Does it does it also uh, represent a risk to um, whatever we are using today to communicate and transfer value outside of blockchain technology? So I think it's in between the two. Uh, because let's say you, you connect to your e-banking website. So there are several steps in the secure connection. That's what we call the handshake, the session initialization, whereby you agree on a key. And in that case, you use some cryptography that could be broken by a quantum computer. However, after that, you just encrypt data. You do pure encryption, symmetric encryption with a cipher that would not be broken by quantum computers. So something like the advanced encryption standard. Um, so if you want to break this using quantum computing, you would have to, to save, to record as an attacker all the communications from the very beginning, from the session establishment and all the subsequent messages. And you will need to store all these gigabytes of data for, for years. Um, and the same for, you know, mobile communications, you take the secure messaging applications, it's about the same. So it's, it's less critical than pure file encryption from my perspective. Maybe, maybe to, uh, to summarize what you, what you just said, um, like quantum computing is a is a big threat for asymmetric cryptography uh, because it's able to to break it, and asymmetric cryptography is used for digital signature and authentication. But as soon as you have done this authentication, you are using symmetric cryptography, and this uh, this kind of uh, of cryptography uh, is immune uh, against uh, against uh, quantum computing. So. In order to summarize what he just said, so if you are able to uh, to spy every single exchange on the internet, uh, you are able to decrypt everything because uh, you are able to uh, to to know the authentication, uh, to break the authentication mechanism, and which is the secret at, at the at the beginning. So it would be a big threat. Uh, the the thing is, it won't happen overnight, and we have solution. Uh, 
that, that there exists some uh, post-quantum cryptography which are immune uh, against uh, this quantum computer. And this uh, post-quantum cryptography implements asymmetric cryptography allowing to do authentication, to do a digital signature, uh, but which are resistant against uh, quantum computing. So there exists solution and it's quite unlikely that overnight a quantum computer happens. Like we, we will have time to see it coming. And when we, we, will, we will get closer to uh, the, the date where we will be able to have a, a relevant quantum computer, we will be able to uh, change the cryptography. But as of now, the industry simply thinks that it's quite unlikely. And the cost of changing cryptography does not worth the risk. This is just the industry statement today. It's a risk management decision. Makes total sense. And I mean, we have seen some projects implementing, um, you know, pre preventive measures. Like if you look at Ethereum, uh, there's uh, EIP 2333. Um, could you speak a little bit more to like how different engineers are starting to think about that and what is like EIP 2333? Uh, so uh, yeah, EIP 2333 is, is quite an uh, old EIP. I think it's mm -hmm. no, not, uh, no relevant, no longer relevant uh, mm -hmm. because it was for uh, Ethereum 2 and uh, for the transition uh, to Ethereum 2, the idea was to move uh, ECDSS signature on SecP uh, the 256K1 to uh, BLS, uh, sorry for, uh, for the people who are not aware of what I just said. The idea was to ch change the digital signature uh, scheme in order to use another one. But finally, uh, the Ethereum 2 transition have, uh, has been a little bit changed and we uh, won't no longer use BLS for a signature, but only for validators. So the EIP 2333, the idea of this EIP was to say, okay, we move to uh, BLS signature and in case BLS signature uh, become insecure against quantum computing because uh, we have uh, quantum computers, we will uh, have a way to move to another signature scheme. So again, uh, this is risk management uh, and the idea of the EIP, this EIP was to prepare the future if ever uh, BLS signature could be broken by uh, quantum computers. And now I think the audience might be confused because we're telling you, oh, there exist solutions. And then we tell you, we don't use these solutions. So the, you might be, uh, what the hell? And the, the reason is that these solutions, uh, well, they're not fully ready yet for two reasons. Because oftentimes people want standards or at least de facto standards. And we're still in the process of having official standards. But we have pretty good, you know, signature schemes that I would use myself. Uh, however, the performance is sometimes an issue. Sometimes the key size or the signature size is a bit less interesting. Maybe I can give you the an example. Probably the post-quantum signatures where we, where we have the highest confidence, the highest security assurance, is the ones we call hash-based because they use hash functions. Oh, that's my favorite. I even designed one. However, the signature size is around 20 kilobytes, whereas the signature we use today, they're 64 bytes. So there's like, you know, order magnitude uh, difference. Yeah, so there was, there was a cost. And as we think the risk is very low, we, we, are, we are not ready to pay the cost 
because we think quantum computers are not a threat right now. Yeah. And when I say we, this is not ledger, this is not tourist, this is the, yeah. the industry, the cryptography uh, community. Yeah, and, and, and like, Sean, like I mentioned before, the cost of transitioning is not just you know pull a switch; it's writing new code, uh, getting confidence in this code, doing all the test suites, all the audits, uh, and if you rush this. There's chances that you might get something wrong, some have some flaw in the code, and might end up less secure than in in the first place. So. That that makes absolute sense. Um, and you know, coming back to that point of we are still early when it comes to quantum computing, um, it looks like it's not really a question of if; it's really a question of when, right? Um, so, how far are we from encryption breaking quantum computers, and will quantum computers ever? be like one day available at like the regular consumer tech store where you can go buy a com quantum computer and, you know, get home, unwrap it and unplug it into to your wall or something. That's a tough one. <laughs> 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 well, you know, we can take bets, but there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, you can always say, well, if there might be a breakthrough, uh, there might be a breakthrough in everything. There might be a breakthrough in factoring. Uh, we might prove that NP equal P and the world collapses. Uh, for, for my, my personal opinion, based on the knowledge we have today, based on the discussions I have with real experts, people doing error, quantum error correcting code, people doing quantum engineering, I don't think I will see a quantum computer breaking crypto in my lifetime. Um, I, I, wish I, I wish I would, but uh, I don't think it will happen. You stole, you stole my, uh, my prediction. I, I, ah. <laughs> I was about to say exactly the same. Um, so. I, I don't think we, we will see in our lifetime a, a, a quantum computer able to break current cryptography. But I would like to. Like, this yeah. kind of revolution is huge and it would change the world like, uh, drastically, but I don't yeah. think it will happen. Yeah. Like, imagine you have like, in some movie scenario, there's some secret you know, organization in a basement and they have a quantum computer they didn't tell anyone. And two more, they're like, ah, we have it. <laughs> no, what would happen? <laughs> I really didn't expect those answers, to be honest. But it's very interesting because on one side, we're talking about like exponential growth. And we're, you know, there's this narrative around Moore's law and AI completely coming in and, and kind of destroying Moore's law's principles. I don't know if you read Sundar Pichai's blog yesterday about the... Um, the new BART technology yeah. that they launched, and he specifically yeah. mentioned that Moore's law wasn't applicable to AI anymore. And obviously, quantum computer is a little bit different because you have that that hardware component, like the physical component, which is AI is yeah. is mainly you know software. Um, yeah, data and software. Yeah, and, and data. But you know, speaking about like AI was like you know top of mind this year. You mentioned that everyone's talking about AI. Um, How's AI going to impact quantum computing development? If, do you see an overlap between those two huge technologies yes. running at the same direction at the same time? Yeah, I think so. It's, it's a great question. So first of all, AI made tremendous progress in the past years. And the emergence of uh, the ChatGPT recently is really mind-blowing uh, because I think because it's very simple and natural interface. But these progress are, are not completely new. Like uh, they have been possible thanks to the computing power and data, thanks to the Moore's law. Because uh, we simply arrived at a point where we have a huge amount of data, a huge amount of uh, computational power, and this is why AI is uh, so mind-blowing. But 
If you have a, look, a closer look to what uh, machine learning, uh, how machine learning works, it didn't evolve mu uh, much. Uh, if you have a look to uh, Yann Lequin-Albeck, who is a famous uh, researcher in AI, he created algorithm able to read postcodes on envelopes in 1986. So th this is this is a long time ago, and the overall uh, principle didn't change much. Like we are using this very same principle. What changed is the fact that today we are able to train functions with billions of parameters by feeding them with all the data of the internet. This is what changed. But the very principle, the, the very principle of machine learning is exactly the, the same. And all of this is coded with bits representing zero and one that are stored and processed in the earth of, the, of electronics wires and transistors that are a few nanometers large. This is what I was saying uh, as an introduction. But then, if tomorrow we are able to build quantum computers capable to execute any kind of program with sufficient computing power, the world of possibility for AI is probably wider than our, our imaginations. But I think it won't, it won't happen, not, not, not soon at least. So we, we, we will continue to, to witness AI running on classical electronics. And there are still huge uh, technology challenges to uh, be solved in order to leverage the potential capabilities of quantum computing for AI. And I'm a little bit disappointed to say this, but I don't think we will see it uh, in our yeah. lifetime. And also, more, uh, you're right, we give the same answer we shall because, you know, we're both technologists, uh, we both understand security pretty well, and we're not here to sell you post-quantum technology. Uh, but if you if people who have a company doing post-quantum, they will be like, you need to be scared. In five years, quantum computers will, you know. Um, and also to answer your question about AI, there's a, f a niche field of research called quantum AI, and it's usually related to doing, you know, uh, AI models, uh, what we call AI today models. But under the hood, they use some uh, subroutines that use that exploit quantum speed up, but not exponential speed up. Most most of the time, something called quantum search uh, to search in a database a bit faster. So on paper, it's fine, but in practice, it's a completely different story, and it's not been implemented yet. And it needs something called quantum RAM, quantum memory, which is even more crazy. However, since we're a bit clueless regarding you know, the, the timeline, I asked ChatGPT uh, while, while Charles was talking, <laughs> and the answer, so I asked, when will a quantum computer be able to break RSA cryptography? So uh, some text, and in the middle it says, it is widely believed that quantum computers will be able to break RSA encryption in the future. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> so in the that's future, not in the past. <laughs> yeah. No specific predictions, say... <laughs> I think I think you know the there's always like the um, I love the fact I love the pragmatism that that you both are bringing to the topic because obviously when you, when you start talking about these futuristic topics and when you you kind of compare or you or you try to forecast the future based on what happened in the past and you know you look at you know I don't know 15 years ago no one would have imagined that you would have one hardware in your pocket that is you know. Uh, a, an internet communicator, a telephone, uh, a calculator, uh, uh, a compass, a map, um, you know, I could keep going. There are about like 15 different hardwares like combined into this one, one, you know, little computer that is so powerful. And I think when people look at the past, they're like, okay, you know, 
the world changed in the past 15 years um, in, in such a dramatic way that anything could happen in the future. I think most people, and with, with the emergence of like um, large uh, diffusion models and language models that are going to be coming um, in, into play here and going to be widely used, I think people people's like kind of understanding of how technology can impact the future is is becoming um, a lot more, people are becoming so much more open-minded, I would say, in terms of like what could happen in the future. Yeah, just, so, you can, you can speak, predict stuff, you know, before we're thinking, oh, AI, it will be, you know, robots, Android devices, and we end up with Midjourney and ChatGPT. Yeah, so. and, and that that's actually true, and I think I think that that's very much related to what we're talking about. Is um, the hardware innovation is so much harder? Like people thought that blue collar jobs were going to be the first impacted because at the end of the day, an AI robot doing um, um, quite a repetitive machine in a, in, a, in a you know whatever um, factory is so much easier than an AI doing something creative. But whatever happened today shows that actually to get a robot to do very complex. Um, tasks is very, very hard because there's the hardware component that that, that comes into play. Um, and I think that's something that no one was thinking about, like in terms of like AI being creative and, you know, taking white collar jobs first before before blue collar ones. Yeah, but what is AI? I mean, AI is a computer that makes decision based on some institutional awareness, based on some information. Uh, some, something that automates uh, easy tasks. And one day in the previous job, I had to create a classifier for some cybersecurity problem using AI. And I ended up having a very simple decision tree model, and I could implement it with uh, three if conditions. And my manager told me, JP, what did you do? That's not AI. I said, well, it works. It solved the problem. And it's a decision tree. So you call it however you want, AI or not. So even simple robots in, um, you know, in factories... Maybe we can call them AI because they do stuff automatically. I, I, I see your point here. But, you know, speaking about that, uh, Charles, I don't know if you wanted to react on that or not, but that question is very much related to that is, you know, we are already seeing the, the, the fact that machines are surpassing our ability as, as humans in so many different ways, whether it be for, you know, processing data, uh, memorizing data, uh, communicating the data to one another as well. Um, and that'll be turbocharged even further. We see it with AI and, and I think it's probably clear. And then maybe one day quantum computers. So it's a little bit of a philosophical question, but if you, if you look at like the, in your lifetime, because you, you said that you wouldn't see quantum computing, you know, um, breaking cryptography in, in your lifetime, but what do you think you will see in your lifetime in the next 50 years? And what are you excited about? <laughs> I, I'm not sure it's exciting, and it's it's <laughs> difficult it's difficult to answer to this one. Uh, Fifty years from now is is a huge amount of time, especially when you look back in human history. For me, it's very clear that the history accelerates. The first big technological revolution, for me, that was the inv in invention of writing, five thousand years ago. Five thousand years ago. Then you have industrial uh, revolution, which starts in the 19th century, like it's 150 years ago. It completely changed the trajectory of humanity. The next revolution is digital, with the apparition of computers in 1950s. Then you have the invention of the internet, 90s. Then you have AI and blockchain more recently. So when you 
take this step back, you can notice that the history accelerates really, really fast, like maybe exponentially. And it's very difficult to predict what will happen in 50 years. But I think we should be able to create AI, for instance, that can't be distinguished from humans. We should be able to create experiences that can't be distinguished from reality. Then I think at this point, we won't be able to have any argument to discard the idea that we already live in a simulation. This is what will happen in the next 50 years. Yeah. In a multiverse. I I wished you you were going to go there, uh, uh, because because I'm um, you know go ahead go ahead um, Jean Philippe. I think I think that's pretty pretty interesting. No, I, I mean I'm fully on board with what Charles said. And for me, one question, you know, even though I'm in technology and security, I'm always skeptical of stuff. And a question on the long run is, to what extent technology will contribute to make us maybe, you know better persons, better human beings, uh, happier in our lives, uh, having a more, a better world with, you know, less violence, uh, less suffering. And what we see today, the impact of technology on people, you know, has both, you know, very positive and very negative effects. So how our society will be able to manage this from a human perspective, from a legal and regulatory perspective, uh, because every time you have new tools, there are some, you know, good usage and some criminal usage. So how will it come into play the society and how will the governments and, uh, or, you know, human society react to this? I have no idea. It's a, such a fascinating topic. And, you know, when you think about, um, you know, we're speaking today about blockchain technology, AI, um, quantum computing, and then there's obviously the metaverse. And I think that the metaverse is just a combination of all of, all of these things, um, you know, brought together, uh, in a way that, that just feels so realistic. Um, And that concept of, you know, we're probably living in a simulation. Well, you know, what is the future and is the past and the future or the past and the future related? Um, I think these are all like, what is the cosmos? All of these like different questions. It goes back to that thing that we said is that like as a human being, our processing power uh, capabilities are just so limited that there are some questions that we're just not able to process because the amount of data that you would have to intake for you to provide them a solution or an answer to that uh, is something that's just beyond our means. Yeah, and how and I think to, that's... to weaponize technology. I mean, you look at ChatGPT. Yesterday I was looking at people trying to jailbreak. ChatGPT trying to brainwash it and tell it things in order ChatGPT to not to follow its content policy. And, you know, we heard about this adversarial AI stuff and uh, for every new technology, there's good use and misuse. And yeah, how do you deal with this? Because to fix or to address a problem, you need to know the problem in the first place. So I, I don't believe in all this, you know, singularity, crazy sci-fi bullshit because oftentimes it's, you know, like the Terminator scenarios. Uh, it's good stories, but you know how AI works. We're not going there. But nonetheless, how to control it uh, and how to adapt the laws. For example, you take the AI art, so to speak, the copyright questions. Very boring topic, but we need to resolve this nonetheless. Who has the copyright if you use uh, DALI? Or... Yeah, so, so many questions to answer. Yeah. Um, before we wrap this up, maybe I, you know, since we've spoken about a, a lot of like inspiring and interesting stuff here, um, if you had to leave um, the audience with something to watch, to read, 
uh, or to listen to, um, what, what would you, what would that be? Related to quantum computing, AI, yeah. futurism, um, yeah. or whatever you are currently interested oh, in at the moment. There is a, a book that I would recommend that covers both the foundations of computing, quantum physics, quantum computing, and cosmology, and to some extent, metaphysics, philosophy, is the book of Scott Aronson, who is uh, an expert uh, in quantum computing. It's called uh, Quantum Computing Since Democritus. Uh, it's a very geeky book, but very entertaining at the same time and not over-technical. So I strongly uh, recommend it if you're interested in these questions. Cool. Um, maybe I would recommend uh, one of uh, Jean-Philippe's talks about uh, quantum, co quantum computing, which, uh, which are quite, quite interesting. And also I would recommend uh, slightly different, but kind of related, uh, a book called uh, Gödel Escherbach. And you will have to find the relationship between these uh, three genius. Uh, Gödel, Escher, the, uh, Gödel is a, a famous mathematician. Um, mm -hmm. Escher is, a, is an artist and Bach is a famous musician. Pleasure. Thanks so much for the inspiring conversation um, and hope to speak to you soon. Thank you, Mo. Thank you, it was a pleasure. That's it. That was kind of mind-blowing, to be honest. Um, futuristic conversations just hit different and I was really interested to deep dive into quantum computing, AI, and can't wait to see what the future holds for all of the interesting things that we talked about. I hope this leaves you with something to think about. On the Ledger, we'll be back soon with more of your favorite content. In the meantime, stay safe. Till next time, au revoir. This content is provided for informational purposes only and is the sole expression of our opinion, and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. Do your own research. Any loss or profit is your sole responsibility. Stay safe.